Well, last week we began a new series looking at the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. It's a series that we're calling All That Jesus Began. And last week, in the first 25 verses, Luke began the story of Jesus by introducing us to a godly couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were an elderly couple, we're told, and as Luke puts it, they were, well, they were well-advanced in years. That is such a politically correct way to say it. <laughs> that sounds so nice. No, they're not old. They're well-advanced in years. And being old, uh, they had given up all hope of having children because, you know, generally speaking, people who are old don't have children. Last week, we read that as Zechariah was serving at the temple in Jerusalem, the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that he and Elizabeth were going to have a son. Amazing news, right? Amazing. And not just any son, Gabriel told Zechariah that their son was going to be the prophet, the great prophet, the forerunner who would go before the Messiah. His name would be John, or as we know him, John the close. It's John the Lutheran. No, John. <laughs> no, John the Baptist. Yes, yes, John the Baptist. This morning, uh, as Luke continues the story, we're going to read about another birth announcement. This time, it's the birth of the Messiah. And if you thought last week's announcement was impressive, I mean, it's impressive, right? They're old. And they're going to have a baby. This announcement, this week's announcement is unmatched in all of human history. I mean, last week was a miracle, but this is like a capital M miracle, right? Is there such a thing? Like you got lowercase miracles and then uppercase miracles. But this is, this is unbelievable, at least for the people around, right? And you know that there are people still today who would say, that is unbelievable, Right? They deny the virgin birth because it is unbelievable. But we're dealing with the sovereign God of the universe. You know, if you can embrace Genesis 1-1, that God spoke in the world into existence, ex nihilo, right? That God took nothing and created everything. If you can believe that, which I do and I think many of you do, it really shouldn't be too much of a stretch to believe that he can actually take a virgin and help her to have a child, right? It doesn't happen every day. That's what makes it a miracle, and that's what we're going to be studying today. But these announcements, these announcements, the, the, the announcement of John the Baptist, the announcement of the birth of Jesus, they are meant to go together. When we study this passage, you are meant to see similarities. You're meant to see that because these two, the Messiah... And, and the prophet that would go before him are linked together to fulfill what had been prophesied in the Old Testament. But before we jump into today's text, I do want to take a moment to clarify uh, something from the text that we looked at last week. After last week's service, a couple of people asked me some questions about the temple structure and the difference between the holy place which is where Zechariah was serving, and the most holy place, sometimes called the Holy of Holies. 
which is where only the high priest could go. So before we continue, I want to take a look, uh, a closer look at this temple structure and, and hopefully help you to better understand what was taking place last week as Zechariah was serving at the temple. So on the screen is an artistic rendering of Herod's temple that, that comes from an excellent resource. I don't often do this, but um, this is an excellent resource called The Rose Guide to the Temple. If you are interested in learning more about the temple, they also have one on the tabernacle. Um, it's an excellent, excellent resource. Talks about the different elements that are at the temple, talks about the sacrifices, talks about the different feasts, uh, and has some great uh, illustrations there. If you look at the picture on the screen, hopefully you can see it enough. But on the left-hand side, on the left-hand side, there's an area that is immediately outside the temple called the Court of the Priests. And there's other courts actually beyond that. There's the Court of the Israelites where Israelite men could go. Beyond that, there's the Court of the Women. Beyond that, there was the Court of the Gentiles, okay? And depending on who you were dictated how close you could get to this, to this temple structure. And the area that you see on the, on the picture on the left is the court of the priests. And so in order to go into that court, you had to be a priest. And there in that court were, were a few different things. Number three, you can see over to, I guess, I don't know if this is your, your right. Over there, number three is where the animals would be sacrificed. That's where the sacrifice would take care of. They would hitch them up. They would, in the most humane way possible, they would sacrifice these animals for the offering. Then... Uh, number one on the screen, the brazen labor. This is where the priests would ceremonially wash their hands and their feet in preparation for service. Okay, this is where they would do that. Then number two on the image is the altar of burnt offering. And this is where the sacrifices would be made. It's a very large structure, actually. There's steps going up to the top of it. They would walk up and that's where the sacrifice would be brought. So that's the outside. The picture on the right, you have a rendering of the inside of the temple. And twice each day, twice each day, the morning and the evening, a priest who had been chosen by lot, like Zechariah, would enter that first room. It's called the holy place. And as they came into that room, on the left-hand side, there was the golden lampstand, also known as the menorah, Okay. And they would come in, and this was the only light for the room. And the priest, when he would come in, he would trim the, the wicks on the lampstand and make sure there was adequate amount of oil to keep the fire or the light burning. This is part of the job of the priest as they went in in the morning and the evening, making sure there was plenty of adequate oil to keep the light going. On the right-hand side of the room was the table of showbread, number seven. And on this table, there were two stacks of bread, two stacks of bread, six high, all right? So a total of 12 loaves of bread. And these loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. It was a constant reminder of God's, of God's covenant with his people and his provision for them. And these loaves would be replaced every Sabbath. So every Sabbath day, they would bring in 12 new loaves. They would take the other 12 loaves out and then the priests who were serving at the temple that week, because remember, they, they rotate. They do a week of service. And so like Zechariah's division, the week that they're serving at the temple, they would eat the loaves that were brought into the temple the week before. And then, so you've got the, the menorah on the right. You've got the table of showbread on the, uh, excuse me, left is the light. 
On the right is the bread, by the way, some allusions to Christ, right? The bread of life, the light of the world. Straight ahead, right in front of the veil, was the altar of incense. And this is where the priest would bring a special mixture of incense, and the smoke rising from the table would provide a fragrant aroma, and it represented the prayers of the people. And this altar of incense was right in front of the inner veil. This is a thick, thick curtain which separated the holy place from the most holy place. And whereas the priest, a priest, would go into the holy place twice per day, morning and evening, the most holy place was only entered on one day per year. One day per year. Do you guys know what day that was? Anybody? The Day of Atonement. That's correct. Yom Kippur. This is a day when the high priest would go into the most holy place and make an offering for the sin, his sins. He would make an offering for the, his, the sins of his family, and there would be an offering made for the sins of the people of Israel one day per year. So that's a, a really brief overview of the temple structure. I hope that that not only helps you to better picture where Zechariah was last week and what he was doing, you can imagine, right? He goes in, he's trimming the wicks, he sees the showbread over here, and he's going up, he's doing the incense, and then the text actually says that Gabriel appeared at the right of the altar of incense. So you could see Gabriel maybe in the corner right there, boom, right? It, that's scary, Right? So hopefully that helps you to better picture that picture, uh, the, the scene from last week's text. But also, you know, as you read stories in the New Testament about the temple, hopefully that will, will help you. So that brings us now to Luke chapter 1, verse 26, where we're going to pick up our, our story today. And our story begins with another visit from the angel Gabriel. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. In verse 27, Luke introduces the reader to a remarkable servant of God, a young lady whose name was Mary. Now, when it comes to Mary, when it comes to Mary, unfortunately, Unfortunately, people have a tendency to, to run to one of two sort of opposite extremes. On, on the one hand, you have those who would elevate Mary far beyond what she deserves, right? And this is largely due to the teachings of the Catholic Church. But on the other hand, there are those who maybe in response to that, perhaps, feel a need to somehow diminish Mary. There are actually those who not only diminish her role, but they actually even defame Mary, you know? There are people who gather in churches who will say, oh, no, no, she wasn't a virgin. No, she totally had sex outside of marriage, and that's what happened, and they have no problem defaming Mary. And what we need to understand is that, that either one of these extremes is wrong. It's wrong. Our job, our job always as followers of Jesus and students of God's word is to examine the scriptures and see what they say. And, and when we study God's word, we're going to see that Mary is an incredible example for all of us. 
She is a role model on how to live a life of submission to the will of God. In, in the same way, and we, it's funny, it, this is particularly true of Protestants. We have no problem elevating somebody like a Joseph, right? We just did a series on the life of Joseph. Joseph, oh, he was such a man of God. We just want to live our lives like Joseph. We have no problem elevating somebody like Daniel. Oh, Daniel, man, just thriving in a foreign land of Babylon, such a godly man. When it comes to Mary, we're like, well, I don't really want to talk about that. No, Mary is an example. Mary lived a life of faith that every single one of us should emulate. There is nothing wrong with acknowledging the godliness of this woman. She was a remarkable, remarkable woman of faith. And in verse 26, Luke tells us that in the sixth month, and this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, when we read that, when we read that verse and, and you hear the word Nazareth, immediately, immediately there's a name that comes to mind. When you hear Nazareth, you hear Jesus, right? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. You see, Jesus made Nazareth known. Jesus made Nazareth known. It's, it's a well-known city today because of the man, Jesus, who came from there. But at the time of Jesus, at the time of Jesus, this place is, is nowheresville, right? Nobody knows where Nazareth is unless you're from that region of Galilee. Nazareth was a small town that was located roughly 60 miles north of Jerusalem, along a hillside that overlooks the Jezreel Valley. It's an incredible view from, uh, from Nazareth. There's a place called the Precipice of Nazareth. And you stand on the top of that precipice and you can see the whole Valley of Jezreel or the Valley of Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo. Incredible. You can just picture Jesus in his, in his boyhood, right? Going for a walk, mom's dad, dad's in the shop and Jesus is skipping work and, and he's you know, hanging out up on the hills of the precipice of Nazareth, overlooking that valley and recalling all the stories from the Old Testament. But Nazareth at that time was nothing more than a town that people passed by. Nobody, nobody set out to, to go to Nazareth. According to the archaeological evidence from the time period of Jesus, at tops, maybe 100 people lived in Nazareth right, at the time of Jesus. This was literally just a, a little podunk town, right, in, in Israel. It's so insignificant, so insignificant that Luke has to tell his reader that Nazareth was in the region called Galilee. Because the reader would be like, Nazareth what? Oh, oh, it's in Galilee. Oh, okay, that makes sense. It's kind of like telling somebody from like maybe Portland or, or, or further south, maybe from Boston or something like yeah, I go to church in Fayette. Fay what? Is that in Canada? Where, where, is, where is Fayette? Nine times out of ten, if you tell somebody you go to church in Fayette, you know this is true. You tell somebody you go to church in Fayette, if they're not from like this area, even, even if they're like from Augusta, they're like, what? But if they're not from this area, you have to give them another, another reference point. You have to say, well, it's, you know, it's like 25 or so minutes from Augusta. 
or it's close to Farmington. If they're really close to it, you might be able to say it's close to Livermore Falls, but Livermore Falls is kind of like Fayette, <laughs> you know, like Livermore what, right? That's what it was like. Nazareth was not particularly well-known. But for those who did know where Nazareth, if you were from Galilee, if you knew where Nazareth was, Nazareth didn't exactly have the best reputation, right? There's a story in John's gospel where Philip is talking with Nathaniel, and both of them, they're, they're from Galilee. And Philip, he is all excited. He can't wait. He's going to tell Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah. We found him. His name is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And Philip, I mean, excuse me, Nathaniel rather, says, you can almost, you can picture his face at this point, right? He goes, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? That's what he said. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He's disgusted. He's puzzled. This doesn't even make sense. It's Nazareth. And Philip said to him, come and see, come and see. Nobody would have ever picked Nazareth as the place where the Messiah would come from. Nobody. But I love that, don't you? Don't you love that? that that's the thing about Jesus. From his birth to his death and every point in between, we see Jesus's life marked by humility, right? If you were going to pick where the Messiah would come from, you would have picked Jerusalem, right? Obviously, obviously, you wouldn't pick Fayette, you wouldn't pick Nazareth, but over and over again in the Gospels, we see Jesus choosing those that the world looks past, doesn't he? He chooses those that nobody else wants anything to do with. Nothing good could come from Nazareth, right? Wrong, wrong. Mary came from Nazareth. And Jesus, the Messiah, came from Nazareth. You know, maybe there is someone here right now who needs to hear this. Maybe your life, maybe your past, maybe the way that you grew up feels a whole lot like Nazareth, right? Full of bad choices, full of regrets, insignificant. Maybe that's how you look at your life. You need to know that no matter where you have come from, no matter what you have done, God is able to do great things in and through your life. He can do it if you'll surrender your life to him. If you'll surrender your life to him, good things can come from Nazareth. So God sends Gabriel to this insignificant town to deliver a message to a very specific girl. Verse 27 says, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Luke tells us a, a couple of things about Mary in this verse. First, he tells us that Mary is a virgin. And just to make sure that you got it, he actually says it twice. Do you notice that? Twice in verse 27, she's referred to as a virgin, she has never experienced physical intimacy with a man. The second thing that Luke tells us here is that Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. 
Now, we don't, we don't know a whole lot about Joseph from the scriptures. We don't know a ton, other than the fact that he was a descendant of King David. We know that. We know that he was a righteous man, according to Matthew chapter 1. We know that he was a carpenter, according to Matthew chapter 13. By the way, the word for carpenter there is the, the Greek word tekton. And that, that word, you'd be better to think of craftsman, craftsman, uh, kind of a handyman. He could work with all different types of materials. And probably, more than likely, it wasn't with like a sawzall and, and a skill saw working with wood. More than likely, Joseph and Jesus worked with stone because most of the homes in, in, in Nazareth, as well as the nearby city of Sepphoris, at the time of, Je- uh, time of Jesus growing up, um, Herod uh, was, was rebuilding Sepphoris, and that was a big building project, o- almost exclusively in stone. So that's what you should picture. We also know at the time of Jesus' birth that, that Joseph was poor at least at the time of his birth. We know that because he and Mary, when they bring Jesus to the temple in Luke chapter two, they brought, instead of a lamb, they brought two uh, turtle doves or or, or two young pigeons. And this was a a provision from Leviticus chapter 12 that was made for those who are poor. If you couldn't afford to bring a lamb, well, you can bring two pigeons or two turtle doves instead. So we know that Joseph and Mary were poor. And Luke tells us that Mary is betrothed to this man. In other words, they are engaged, looking forward to the wedding, right? Let's talk about betrothal, okay? Betrothal, because it's a little different than our engagement process. It's similar, but there are some stark differences. In the Jewish marriage process, there were two stages. In the first stage, the betrothal, the couple would enter into a formal agreement and a commitment to marry one another. It was more than just, will you marry me? She said, yes, I gave her a ring, and now we're engaged. No, the family would come together to be a ceremony, typically at a synagogue, typically, and there would be, it would be a, a formal commitment. Usually, there would be some sort of a financial exchange, like a dowry uh, given to the bride's family. And at that point, Once the ceremony was complete, the couple would officially enter into the betrothal period. And this period typically lasted about 12 months. It could be a little bit shorter, but not not typically. Typically, it was 12 months. And during this betrothal period, the couple were technically, technically, they were considered to be husband and wife. Only they were not yet living together and they were not experiencing any physical intimacy. Actually, and a lot of times, they would even minimize their their social contact during that betrothal period. Because the betrothal period served a couple purposes. It, It provided enough time to make sure that the bride was not already pregnant. We're engaged, and now we're gonna wait at least six, seven, eight months to make sure she's not showing right? It was a test of her purity. It was also a test of that couple's fidelity, right? Not only that, but it was also a time for them to finish preparations and getting, you know, getting ready to be married. So the husband's preparing the home and getting ready to bring his bride to live together as husband and wife. But the betrothal period, like today, 
today. If, if a couple's engaged and just, you know, things aren't working out the way we thought it would, it's kind of simple. You just kind of pull up. Oh, it's simple if your hands aren't, you know, f- fingers aren't fat. Um, they would just remove the ring, hand it back, and say the engagement's off, right? It's a pretty simple process to cancel an engagement today. Not, I mean, obviously there's emotions involved, but, but in that day, if you were going to cancel a betrothal, it required a certificate of divorce. I mean, you were literally husband and wife. You're just waiting for the intimacy part, waiting to live together. It's so serious that if the, if the husband were to die during the betrothal period, you would become, the, the woman would become what's known as a virgin widow, a virgin widow. Wow. We don't have a lot of those today, Right? This is very different, very different, very serious. The betrothal period is not something that was taken lightly. So Mary and Joseph are are in this betrothal period. One more thing about betrothals, I should tell you, that I think this really does help us to better understand this story. Um, Because again, we we read these stories and we've got like like a couple thousand years of, of beautiful artwork showing what what Christmas looked like, right? I mean, Mary and Joseph in their beautiful clothes that are gold and glowing, and right? And they're usually depicted as like someone like their 30s or something, you know? Something you should know about the betrothal period is that in that culture at the time of Mary and Joseph, the typical age for a young woman to enter into betrothal was somewhere between 13 to 15 years old. 13 to 15 years old. It could actually happen as young as 12, that was the bottom, 12, maybe 16, 17, 18 tops, right? So Mary would likely have been a young teenage girl, teenage girl, engaged to a poor carpenter named Joseph. Does that change the picture in your mind at all? You know, picture the, the, the middle school kids that, you know, go off to Sunday school or some of the young ladies that are just sitting in this room right now. Think about the responsibility that she was taking on at such a young age in that culture. You know, this whole like adolescent thing, it's a total foreign concept in Judaism. This idea that you go from being a child to becoming an adolescent where you have no responsibilities and you can spend the next you know, five, six years making a fool of yourself, making all kinds of bad decisions, end up in counseling and all these things, right? It just, and then you become an adult and have to make up for all the, the stupid stuff you did in your adolescence, right? Which is why we now have 20-somethings that are still behaving like adolescents, Right? A totally foreign concept in, in that culture. Totally foreign. You were either a child or you were an adult. I think we could learn a lot from that. We expect far too little from our adolescents, don't we? We expect too little of them. And if you set the bar a little higher, I believe they will rise to it. I've seen it. I've seen it amongst our young people here. Set the bar higher, they will rise to it. Wow. We need to have this proper picture of Mary as we study this text. I have to tell you, for me, it, it just makes Mary's response so remarkable when you think about the fact that this is a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl, you know, in, in, in a culture 
Wow, so much required of her. Amazing, amazing. So Mary and Joseph, they're, they're in this betrothal period. They're waiting to get married. You know, and, and I think that you know, they're probably waiting for these months to pass, waiting to prove that I'm not pregnant. I'm a pure virgin. I have waited for marriage. This is what's in her mind. We're going through this formality. We got to wait. But in a few more months, a few more months, we're going to be husband and wife. We're going to live together. And I really believe that like most young people looking forward to their wedding, I would imagine that Mary had all kinds of hopes and dreams about what life was going to be like with her husband, Joseph. Don't you think? Don't you think she was thinking about it? Or like, oh, I wonder how many kids we're going to have, and I wonder this, and I wonder that. And Nowhere in her mind did what's about to happen come into the play, <laughs> right? She had so many hopes, so many dreams. And Mary gets a visit from the angel Gabriel. Verse 28, and he, Gabriel, came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Gabriel greets this young woman with a statement declaring the favor of God that has been bestowed on her life. Greetings, O favored one. Mary, God has chosen you. You are the object of God's favor, full of grace. Mary, the Lord is with you. Now, that is quite a greeting, right? I mean, besides the, fact, besides the fact that she's being greeted by an angel, right? I mean, that's crazy enough, right? But what he says is also quite a greeting. No wonder the text says that she was greatly troubled, greatly troubled. I love the way that verse 29 is rendered in the New Living Translation, Confused and disturbed, <laughs> Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. She's confused. She's disturbed. I find it fascinating a little bit that it's not the presence of the angel that is her, primarily, uh, her primary concern because that's likely what would be... I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't hear what he said, right? Because it's an angel, right, visiting me. It says that she was actually disturbed by what he said. Gabriel comes into her, her presence and he announces God's favor on her life. And Mary looks around and she's like, are you talking to me? What? What, what, what is this? What is this? I don't understand. I don't understand. She's troubled. She's confused. She's a poor teenager from a podunk town called Nazareth right? Never in a million years did she expect to have a visit from the angel Gabriel. And I really think that her initial reaction, the idea that she says like, what? Who? Me? What? I think that just, just really goes to show the humility of Mary. It's not like she was like, well, it's about time you showed up. <laughs> Pretty much like the best teenage girl in all of Israel, I've been following the law flawlessly and uh, just waiting for the announcement that I would be the mother of the Messiah. <laughs> like, no, of course not. Although that's how she's sometimes portrayed. No, she's like, what? I don't understand. She's troubled. She's confused. And she's afraid. She's afraid. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, behold, 
You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Gabriel says, Mary, you don't have anything to be afraid of. God's favor, his grace is on you. You're going to have a baby. You're going to have a baby boy, and you're going to name him Jesus. The angel tells her what she's going to name her child. Last week, we talked about the fact that be, when, an, when an angel or God tells the parent what you're going to name the child, that's usually an indication that God has very specific plans for that child. And she says, he says, you're going to name him Jesus. Now, this was a very popular name at the time of Christ. Okay, this is a very popular name. Jesus, there was Jesus everywhere, right? I don't know what's a popular name today, but uh, we always, you know, when we chose our kids' names, we like, let's choose a name that not everybody has, right? And then you choose it, and everybody has it, right? <laughs> like, there's a million Caleb's running around, there's a million Jordans, a million Connors, right? They're everywhere. Well, Jesus was a popular name, which is why, by the way, in the Gospels, you see him referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. It distinguishes him from all the other Jesuses running around, right? They're everywhere. Jesus. Now, his name in Hebrew is Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Now, some of the other guys that were running around with the name Yeshua, that was just because their parents liked the name. But God specifically chose this name because it revealed, it revealed his mission, salvation. Matthew chapter 1, when, when an angel appears to Joseph, he said, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, I, which I think honestly is probably like if I had to pick a theme verse for the gospel of Luke, Luke 19, 10, Jesus himself said this, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That was his mission. That is, and so he lived up to his name, Yeshua. Verse 32, Gabriel continues and he says, he will be great. Interesting, by the way, that at the time, who's the king in, in, in Israel at this time? Herod the Great. Which, by the way, I read that, that he actually chose that name for himself. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> so you, got, you got Mary, humble Mary, and then you got Herod the Great. You can call me Chris. Chris the Great. You know? Like crazy, right? Such a lack of humility from Herod. And, and, and Gabriel says, oh, yeah, Herod the Great, let me tell you, there's going to be a king who truly is great that's going to be born. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, last week, I told you that when Zechariah was hearing, when he was hearing the, the angel Gabriel talking about what John the Baptist would do, I told you that Zechariah heard one word, Malachi, 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 right? Your son is going to be the prophet, the, the messenger who would go before the Messiah that is pre, uh, predicted in, in, the, in, the, in the words of the prophet Malachi. That's what Zechariah would have heard. Well, in the same way, when Mary hears Gabriel's description here in these verses, Mary's hearing one word, Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. She's hearing, your son is going to be the Messiah. Whoa. What? 
Well, I'm just, I'm Mary from Nazareth. I'm just a teenage girl looking forward to getting married and, you know, having a couple pigeons. You know, we, we're going to be poor, but we love each other. This is crazy. Can you even begin to imagine all of the thoughts that start to run through Mary's mind? I mean, okay, I'm going to have a son. That's great news. I'm going to be a mom. Yay. The Messiah? Wow, what does that mean? I mean, how do we raise a Messiah? How do we do this? This is crazy. She has all these thoughts running through her mind. Now, Gabriel gives her five descriptions, five descriptions about her son. These are five predictions that would clearly have yelled out Messiah. Your son is the long awaited Messiah. The first one was that he would be great. In every possible way, Jesus is the greatest person to have ever lived. He truly is Jesus the great. He's perfect in every way. He's completely without sin. He is free from selfish ambition. He submitted perfectly to the will of the Father in every way, right? Even to the point of death, we're told in Philippians chapter 2, which is why God has highly exalted him, Philippians 2, 9, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Gabriel says, he will be great. Jesus is truly great. Second, he will also be called the son of the most high. Jesus is not only going to be the son of Mary, he is the son of God. He's the son of God, the son of the most high. When Jesus was baptized, right, by John the Baptist, later, Matthew chapter three, we're told that the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is the son of God. Third, he would be given the throne of his father, David. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse 16, the Lord spoke to David through the prophet Nathan and said, your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Fourth, he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. We just we just studied the life of Joseph, right? You remember the, all the announcements, the, the blessings that Jacob pronounced over his, his sons? Jesus is the final king that was prophesied in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. We just read this a few weeks ago. When Jacob blessed his son Judah, he said these words. He said, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him will be the obedience of the peoples. Jesus would be the king of Israel. Third, uh, fourth, that was fourth. Fifth, there will be no end to his kingdom. Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven, we read this. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. By the way, 700 years. This was written by Isaiah 700 years before, eight, before Gabriel shows up and talks to Mary. 700 years. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice 
and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Gabriel describes Jesus in ways that are unmistakably identifying him as the long-awaited Messiah. And make no mistake, when Mary heard these words, she knew exactly what Gabriel was saying. It came through loud and clear. And so in verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Mary hears what the angel is saying. Messiah, 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 you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. And Mary says, I don't understand. I don't understand. How is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man. Gabriel, I don't know. You're from heaven. Maybe you don't understand how things work on earth. (laughs) People who have babies, it's a man and a woman involved, you know? I don't understand. Now, at first glance, at first glance, we read this, and, and you have to be thinking, or at least I did, Boy, that sounds a whole lot like what Zechariah did last week, right? Last week, you remember what, what Zechariah did, right? He's like, I, I, I don't, I'm going to need a sign. I'm going to need a sign. I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. We're old, right? Elizabeth and I, we're, we're well past having babies. I don't get it. You're going to have to give us a, a sign. And God did give him a sign, didn't he? Yeah, it took away his, took away his voice. See, the problem with Zechariah is that his question was rooted in doubt. It was rooted in doubt. It wasn't a question for Zechariah. It wasn't a question of, okay, God, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? Zechariah didn't believe that God would do this. He didn't believe he would. And so Gabriel's like, hey, I stand in the presence of God. God said this is going to happen. It's going to happen. And because you doubted, guess what? You can't talk until the baby's born. Yeah, here's your sign, right? It was disbelief. That that was Zechariah's problem. It was disbelief. Mary's question is different. It, it's just it's incredibly pragmatic, really, right? For Mary, it's not a question of will God do this. She knows God is going to do it because God said he'd do it. He sent me an angel. She's just confused on the how. She's like the timing. Like, wait a minute. Is this going to happen now or are we going to wait till after we get married? Oh, oh, I get it. So after we get married, then we're going to have a baby and then it's going to be the Messiah. Or is it now? Well, surely you wouldn't want me to, you know, sleep with Joseph before, the, before our marriage. That wouldn't be right. I, how, how is this going to happen? I don't understand. What's the plan? How is this all going to work? And in verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The angel says, Mary, there isn't going to be a man involved in this pregnancy. This is going to be a supernatural conception. This child will be conceived by the all-powerful hand of God, the same God who spoke the universe into existence. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he will overshadow you and you will conceive and he will be called holy, the son of God. Now, at this point, Mary has to be remembering the words that she had grown up hearing read in the synagogue. The words of the prophet Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet said, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew says that all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Mary, a teenage girl, get that picture in your mind. This teenage girl from Nazareth finds out that she is the virgin that Isaiah wrote about 700 years prior. Can you just, I mean, can you honestly just imagine what's going through Mary's head? Like, mind blown, right? This is unreal, unbelievable. <laughs> Isaiah was writing about me. Mary is going to be pregnant with, and she's going to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 36, Gabriel continues, and he says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Listen, this verse right here, guys. This is it. If you don't remember anything else from this message today, remember these words. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing, nothing, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing, nothing. I love what, uh, there, there's a, a Dutch pastor. I'm not gonna try to pronounce his name. It's on the screen. You can have fun with it. This Dutch pastor said this. He said, the laws of nature are not chains which the divine legislator has laid upon himself. They are threads which he holds in his hand in which he shortens or lengthens at will. Isn't that a great picture? Gabriel tells Mary that Elizabeth, I mean, people thought it would be impossible for your, 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 your relative Elizabeth to have a baby, but let me tell you something. She's pregnant, Mary. Elizabeth's having a baby. And Mary's like, what? You're kidding me. Elizabeth and Zachary, they have wanted to have a baby their whole life, and everybody looked down on Elizabeth. Everybody thought that there was sin in their life. There was something wrong with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And now she finds out that her relative is having a baby. She's six months pregnant. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. Mary is going to conceive, even though she's a virgin, she's going to conceive and she's going to have a baby. Why? Because nothing is is impossible with God. We're going to read the rest of the book of Luke. We're going to read the Gospels, right? And in the Gospels, we find out that Jesus, he, he's going to heal the sick. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. He's going to restore sight to the blind, open deaf ears, right? He's going to feed thousands of people with just a few fish and loaves. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. He's going to ride in a boat, and, and the storm's going to come, and he's going to say, stop, and the storm will obey him. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. He's going to raise his, his, his friend Lazarus back to life after he was in a tomb to the point where he stinketh, right? <laughs> He's going to raise Lazarus back to life. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. And then the miracle of all miracles, they're going to lay his body in a tomb, and he is going to come back to life three days later. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. 
right? And ever since Jesus defeated sin and death, listen, miracle after miracle after miracle, marriages have been restored, addicts have come clean, sins have been forgiven, and our eternal destinies have been changed, right? Why? Because nothing, nothing, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. If you are a follower of Jesus, I mean, think about this. Think about this. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, like Mary, Mary became the, the, the residence of the Messiah, right? Came and dwelt in her belly, right? For nine months. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit comes to tabernacle within you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Does that blow your mind? Does that blow your mind? It should. Because nothing is impossible with God. I mean, look at yourself, right? Are you fit to be the temple of the Holy Spirit of God? I'll answer it for you. No. <laughs> you are not. And neither am I. Neither am I. None of us, none of us is worthy of that incredible grace, right? But nothing is impossible with God. Verse 38, Mary said, behold, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Without hesitation, Mary responds in total submission to the will of God. She says, I am the Lord's servant. Whatever the Lord wants, Whatever he wants, that's, that's what I want. She says, let it be to me according to your will. Now, you might be thinking, well, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's easy to submit to God's will when he says, hey, you're going to be the mother to the Messiah. No, no thanks. <laughs> no thanks. It's easy when, it, when it's something you think would be a, a great honor. But let me ask you a question. Is it easy? Is what God is calling, is calling Mary too easy? Think about what this plan is going to mean for Mary. She's going to be found pregnant during the betrothal period. I mean, that happens in our culture all the time, right? They're engaged. They're, they're having a baby. And we don't, you don't blink an eye at that, right? Not in that culture. Not in that culture. She would be looked down on the rest of her life. For the rest of her life, people would look at her and she'd see their stares. She'd hear their whispers saying, oh, there's Mary and her illegitimate son, right? She would, she would have to embrace the shame for the rest of her life. And how about this? She hears this news and immediately says yes, knowing full well that, oh man, what is Joseph going to do? Uh, we've been looking forward to getting married. When Joseph finds out, I might lose Joseph. I might lose Joseph. In fact, she almost did, right? Joseph was going to leave her. He was planning to, to divorce her quietly, according to Matthew's gospel. Planning to until God sent an angel and said, don't do that, Joseph. Don't do that. Mary is faithful. This, 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 this baby, this baby is from God. And so Joseph, being a righteous man, he went through with it too. He did. no. No, Mary was not called to an easy task here. It wasn't an easy task at all. All the dreams, all the hopes that she had, everything that she thought her life was going to look like was changed in a moment. 
in a moment. But God had other plans. God had other plans for her, and she said, whatever God wants, that's what I want as well. You know, she's like her son in that way. You know, Jesus lived his life totally submitted to the will of the Father, didn't he? From start to finish. Whatever God wants, that's what I want. Not my will, but your will be done. Question, I guess, that we have to ask is, will we live that way? Are we willing to follow God no matter where he leads us? Are we willing to lay down our lives in submission to his will? Listen, it may not always be easy. It isn't. Following God's will for your life might be difficult. There might be incredible sacrifices that you have to make, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And there's an awesome, awesome promise that's in this passage that I kind of just blew by when we were going through. He is with us. He is with us. God doesn't just call us to take these acts, uh, these steps of faith and to follow him and follow his plans for our lives without also promising to say, I will be with you. In verse 28, Gabriel told Mary, the Lord is with you. He's going to be with you through this pregnancy. He's going to be with you. He didn't even tell her all that was going to happen, right? She has no idea how much heartache she's about to endure, the pain that she's going to have to endure raising Jesus and watching her son die on a cross. But the Lord will be with her. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus said, I am with you always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is Emmanuel, isn't he? He is God with us, and he will be with us no matter what he calls us to do. My prayer for you and for me is that we would be able in a moment's notice to have the ability to respond to anything God asks us with the same type of response as Mary. She's quite a lady, isn't she? She's quite a lady. Some teenage girl growing up in Nazareth, setting the bar pretty high for the rest of us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you Thank you, thank you for your servant, Mary. Thank you for the way that she models the type of submission that we should have, the desire to, to walk in obedience to you no matter what it means. What a privilege. What a privilege. God, that we, like Mary, we have been, we've become objects of your favor. We are full of your grace. We've become temples of your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that the knowledge that you are always with us would give us the courage to be able to live in full submission to you, following whatever plan you have for our life. It may not always be easy, but we know, God, it will always be good. God, I pray that as we continue to celebrate this time of Christmas over the next several weeks, oh, Lord, help us. God, help us to, to not just rehearse these stories in our minds over and over again and, and, and treat them lightly. God, there's so much you want to teach us. God, I believe you want to change us. We pray that you would do that. 
We pray that you would do that for the sake of your name, for your glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.